This is New America Now, Dispatches from the New Majority. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Coming up, a dying breed, what urban radio means to its community. Just having the ability to turn on the radio and hear a familiar personality has sort of a cathartic effect. The questions some people had to answer to get the right to vote. Questions like, you know, how many soap bubbles are there in a bar of soap? And the director of Shakespeare in Love discusses his new film, The Debt. The aftermath of the Second World War and the atrocities that occurred during that time seems a subject that is always worth looking at and worth telling, particularly from a very fresh perspective. All that and more coming up on New America Now. The news that inner-city media, one of the nation's largest black-owned radio networks, was recently forced to file bankruptcy, calls the future of minority-owned and urban-formatted radio into question. Joe Miller is a radio and technology blogger and the deputy director of the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. He spoke with New America Media's Kevin Weston. Joe Miller, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Mr. Miller, could you explain to me what inner city media has meant, in particular, uh, you know, its legacy stations like WBLS and KBLX here locally? Uh, what does it mean to the black community and why is it important? Well, I grew up listening to WBLS. You know, it was one of those stations my mom would have on, you know, in the apartment or family members would have on, you know, in the neighborhood when we go to different parties and things. So WBLS is is one of my hometown radio stations. And for a lot of folks in, in the community, black radio is kind of a lifeline. Obviously, we have a lot of difficult times for the country generally, and they're even worse for people of color. And just having the ability to turn on the radio and hear a familiar personality or hear someone on the phone who's going through a, a similar situation that you are has sort of a cathartic effect. But what we're seeing is that many black-owned radio stations are going out of business, and the number of black-owned radio stations is nowhere near the proportion of African-Americans living in the nation overall. Um, and so what we try to do at the Joint Center and several other organizations try to do is try to ask the FCC to look at new policies to stimulate media ownership among people of color, and that includes African-Americans and Hispanics. Now, could you explain why inner city media is is in bankruptcy at the moment? I understand they owe about $250 million, but, you know, there are other companies that owe that much money, too. Why why inner city media? Yeah, um, it's hard to tell since inner city media is not a publicly traded company exactly what all of their assets and liabilities are. Um, but when we looked at MS Broadcasting, we saw that MS Broadcasting, which is inner city's main competitor in New York, owes just $100,000 more in what's called long-term debt than inner-city media. Um, MS Broadcasting is a publicly traded program, so uh, company, so they have a variety of shareholders. Inner-city has a smaller number of shareholders, and many of those shareholders are people of color. Now, what we saw is that inner-city owes $254 million to its creditors, 
and the Ukaipa companies filed in U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Manhattan for an involuntary declaration of bankruptcy against inner city. Now, what, what that would mean is, is that if inner city goes into bankruptcy, then there would be a restructuring process um, that would determine who the owners would be. And one of those potential owners is Magic Johnson. So it looks like a, another minority might step in into ownership. But I want you to talk a little bit about the legacy of WBLS. I mean, you talked earlier about how you grew up with the station, but I also know it was very uh, influential in the realm of hip-hop as well as uh, soul and R&B music. Could you talk a little bit about WBLS and its its life in your community? Yeah, um, it was it was founded in 1970, and its roots are really in the civil rights movement because the two founders, Percy Sutton and Clarence Jones, uh, were both leading civil rights figures at the time. They were giants Percy. in black media. I mean, Sorry? I mean, they were giants in black media, correct, in New York? Well, one of them was. Percy Sutton was an attorney to Malcolm X, and he was the president of the New York Borough of Manhattan. And then Clarence Jones was a former publisher of the New York Amsterdam News, which is one of the oldest African-American-owned newspapers in the country. Um, and so the roots go back, go way back to the civil rights movement. But as, as WBLS has progressed through the years, they've had several well-known air personalities. The most recent example is Wendy Williams, who now has a syndicated television show. And she made her start at WBLS. Um, she, I don't know if she made her start at WBLS, but mm. she is, she's certainly a staple of New York City radio. But you know, I, I speak from my from my own experience, and no, and just having WBLS to turn on to listen to to something other than mainstream pop music is something that's of tremendous was of tremendous value to me, and I know is of tremendous value to many people. Well, well this bankruptcy has brought up, uh, I think, an issue in black radio. And that is, can these black-orientated stations survive without diversifying their programming? And I, I want you to speak about that a little bit in terms of, you know, here in a, at, at KBLX, which, which Inner City Media owns, I grew up with KBLX, and it, you know, it was sort of the alternative to the pop R&B stations or hip-hop stations. And um, that's, that's important for us as a community. Yeah, it is important for us as a community to have a radio station, some type of media that speaks to issues that are of concern to us from our perspective. It's one thing to get that information from a corporation that's more mainstream with a diverse, sort of diverse demographics in terms of their shareholders. But when you look at the upper management of many of those companies, they do not reflect anywhere near the diversity of the country as a whole. And so what we end up having are radio stations that, for the untrained observer, seem to be speaking to our needs by playing hip-hop and, and playing R&B and throwing in some news here and there. But at the end of the day, their programming is not really a subjective type of thing. I, I just want to I wanted to follow up with just one one piece of this, which is I want you to take on the idea of you know these stations having to change their format to get a larger audience to stay in business. Is that something viable for black radio to do, and it would it be cynical for us to do that? Well, it depends on what the research shows. I don't think that this necessitates 
turning WBLS into a country station, for example. Mm -hmm. But there's a measurement in radio ratings called duplication, the duplicated audience, which shows the number of listeners that listen to one station in addition to another. Mm -hmm. And so what these stations have done, but what they need to continue to do, stations like KBLX and WBLS, what they need to continue to do is look at that duplicated audience of African-American listeners and find out what's causing them to switch and address those issues in their programming. Now, this is purely a programming solution. My blog post also mentioned some other issues that may be at work as far as their ability to reduce their debt load. And, and what, financial what, management. Yeah, what would those what would those forces be? Is it is it financial mismanagement? Is it not being able to get access to capital like other stations do? Well, I think the issue is multifaceted, but it all starts from ratings and the ratings of the radio station. And the ratings affects the sales, the advertising sales that a station is able to generate. And the ratings of course are based on the number of listeners and the percentage of listeners that listen to a radio station. And there was some debate a few years ago about Arbitron changing their ratings methodology. They switched from a diary-based method where people would receive a diary in the mail and they would fill it out based on their memory of which stations they listened to. And now the subjects of these studies are able can carry around a device that picks, actually picks up the radio stations that these folks listen to. And so there was quite an uproar around that because the main driver for black radio is the loyalty of the, their listeners and the, the amount of time that the listeners spend listening to that station. And now this new meter affected the ability of, sta of black-oriented stations that rely on loyalty. Their ability to measure that loyalty was impeded significantly by uh, the PPM. Now, it, even with even with the people meters, you know, there is statistics out there that this audience for adult urban contemporary folks like Stevie Wonder and Curtis Mayfield on the radio, it seems like the audience is growing, correct? The urban AC, it's called an urban adult contemporary format, which basically features artists like Mays featuring Frankie Beverly, Earth, Wind and Fire, Marvin Gaye, R. Kelly. That is the most popular format among African-Americans, but there are other formats that are growing in popularity. And so that kind of addresses the programming issues that many black-owned stations are faced with. Should they stay focused on what they're doing now, or should they address some of the reasons why some of their listeners are switching to radio stations that are not black-oriented? Well, that, that's interesting to me. What, what formats are growing I mean, if if adult contemporary is still the most popular one, adult urban contemporary is still more popular, are, you know, black people listening to techno now? Are we going to techno stations or classical stations? Well, we have a lot. There's a lot of there's growth in both the adult contemporary and the pop formats among African-Americans. The adult contemporary are artists like Eric Clapton, Whitney Houston, artists like that, and then the pop format are more crossover mainstream artists like Lady Gaga, Bruno Mars, Pink, Black Eyed Peas. And there's a lot of those formats are, are growing in, in popularity. So the future is diversity, you would think. Or, or if, if stations choose to, to change, they would choose to maybe play 
Stevie Wonder and Lady Gaga back to back. Right. I, I think that there is that black-owned radio stations are under tremendous pressure to make their programming a little bit more mainstream. But there's a way to do that that communicates the African-American experience that resonates with Americans overall. And I think that's what these stations need to figure out. So what would that experience be? Well, it depends on the context. I mean, you, you, if, if Pepper Miller of the Hunter Miller group raised an interesting example in Ad Week about a Target ad that featured an African-American family where the father was behind the new HD TV plugging it into the wall and it was just a, a, a normal-looking family, but they placed it in mainstream media. And so depicting the African-American experience can be done in a way on radio as well that resonates with the mainstream audience. It doesn't have to be, this approach doesn't have to be limited to retail brands. What, what's more important, Mr. Miller, the, the programming or the actual ethnicity or race of the person who owns the station? This was an issue that was raised in a case called Metro Broadcasting versus the FCC. And the majority held that diversity and ownership leads to programming that speaks to the precise needs of the community. But in Sandra Day O'Connor's dissenting opinion, she basically said that what's to say that having diverse ownership will actually lead to diverse programming? What's to say that a diversity of ownership is, is not going to cause station owners to program what the market wants rather than what they personally think the programming should be? So this, is, this has kind of been an ongoing debate. Um, but certainly, if WBLS does switch formats, and uh, I, I would expect that there would be some kind of public outcry that the only stage, the only station that was owned by people of color that played black-oriented music, is now you know, not playing black-oriented music anymore, and, and featuring black-oriented news the way it had been before. Okay, Mr. Miller, could you give me your give me your sense of what the future of black radio uh, will be? Um, if you could vision into the future, you know, if if this bankruptcy goes through, we'll lose in a city. It looks like, but what do you think will be the future of it? And how how do these companies survive and stay alive in this in this age? Well, you have to start from the from the viewpoint that the radio industry is changing for all owners, whether they're privately held or publicly traded. For example, it's now reported that Pandora, which is an online listening service, takes about 3.6% of listening. Their revenues were up something like 117% last year. So there is a lot of competition coming from a lot of different platforms. And the, the future for black radio right now is pretty grim because we don't have the policies in place. We didn't have them in place from the outset to allow them to develop the capital that they need to build and move forward, as other companies have been able to do. Well, this this seems almost counterintuitive because the audience, uh, the urban audience that WBLS focused on is growing. Isn't that correct? I guess if you, if, it depends on how you, you... The audience for Urban AC, according to, to Arbitron, urban... Adult Contemporary, which is the format that WBLS is and that KBLX is. 
and that, that, would that be... is still the most popular format among African Americans. So you'd hear but Stephen, there are other formats you'd... that are that are also gaining in popularity, such as adult contemporary, which is not urban contemporary. It's an adult contemporary. That's more mainstream. That's also growing in popularity. And so the number of duplicated listeners who listen to Urban AC and AC are growing. Joe Miller, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Joe Miller is a radio and technology blogger and the deputy director of the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. He spoke with New America Media's Kevin Weston. This is New America Now. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Friend us on Facebook. Just search for New America Now Radio. decade, the nation's census provides a snapshot of how the country has changed. These numbers determine how jurisdictions for local, state, and national elections will be drawn. This highly politicized process is currently taking place all over the country, under the watchful eye of many advocates, including Joaquin Avila, one of the nation's preeminent voting rights lawyers and director of the National Voting Rights Advocacy Initiative at Seattle University School of Law. The former president and general counsel of the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, Avila's groundbreaking work and effective advocacy were rewarded with a MacArthur Genius Award in 1996. He joins us today to speak about the politics of redistricting and whether the significant growth of the Latino population is likely to result in greater representation and political clout for the Latino community. He speaks with New America Now's Irma Herrera. Joaquin, welcome to New America Now. Thank you. Can you tell us what the National Voting Rights Advocacy Initiative is and how it is funded? Yes, uh, the National Voting Rights Advocacy Initiative uh, works under the auspices of the Fred T. Korematsu Center for Law and Equality at Seattle University School of Law. And it started about two and a half years ago where where the law school uh, wanted to establish an initiative that was specifically devoted to the advocacy and enforcement of voting rights for racial and ethnic minorities. And so for the past uh, time period, um, I have been working very aggressively to try to uh, get involved in voting rights cases in various parts of the country, and also to serve as an advocate for racial and ethnic minority communities in the redistricting process. And uh, in right uh, uh, now, because of the recent uh, uh, release of the census figures, I mean, every 10 years there's a, a, a release of the census figures, and that requires the boundaries of election districts uh, to be redrawn. Uh, it's a very busy time period uh, for voting rights advocates. And the law school is funding this particular program, and that's very unusual. I know of no other law school in the country that is doing this kind of uh, work. In addition to that, uh, the initiative also is seeking private funding as well. And 
recently we were the recipients of a grant from the Open Society Institute. So we're uh, very much promoting the whole issue of voting rights advocacy as well as seeking funding uh, for this initiative. But the law school has provided uh, assistance, financial assistance, since the program was first initiated. Well, and as you said, there's no more critical time than right now in terms of the redrawing of the districts. Let me ask you about the struggle for voting equality for Latinos, because most people are familiar with the decades-long struggle of African Americans to get the right to vote. But you rarely read about what kind of injustices Latinos faced in terms of having the franchise. It's not a history that's very much different from the African-American history. And uh, it's, it basically started when the Mexican-American War was terminated uh, back in 1848. And because of that, uh, the, the U.S. acquired uh, territory in the Southwest and parts of the Northwest. And when they acquired that territory, there were people and governments already established here in this part of the country. And these governments uh, and people were uh, basically uh, Mexican citizens. And uh, overnight, they became uh, U.S. citizens uh, in many instances. And so when you're talking about trying to have the political power governing board to be representative of their communities, uh, those struggles started back in the uh, late uh, 1800s. And particularly in the Southwest, when you had a massive influx of, uh, of whites moving into places like New Mexico, Arizona, and Cal- California, Colorado, and so on, uh, you see that there's struggles that are occurring. And some of those struggles involve things like uh, uh, the conversions uh, from district elections to at-large elections. Uh, it involves struggles regarding the publication of laws and services, uh, service documents from governmental agencies into Spanish. Uh, and in many places, it, it involved outright intimidation, and especially in parts of Texas. And those are the only the, the ones that we have documented uh, mm-hmm. documentation for. Uh, There are many other instances where you have people who suffered a great deal of physical harm uh, as a result of trying to get registered to vote, trying to uh, participate uh, as candidates. And all of that uh, in recent times uh, has been fairly well documented, uh, especially when one uh, looks at the record that was developed Uh, when various Latino organizations testified before Congress in extension of the Federal Voting Rights Act in 1975 and then in 1982 and then the year 2006. And you get a a very strong sense of uh, all of the voting discrimination that has occurred against Latinos. So when I refer to voting discrimination, it's a shared uh, discrimination am- among people of color. I mean, mm-hmm. We haven't even talked about Asian Americans or Native Americans, but mm-hmm. they're all the same devices. They've just been applied at different times and different periods. And what exactly is it that the Voting Rights Act provides? The Voting Rights Act is the most effective civil rights legislation ever enacted by Congress. And it was uh, adopted primarily to address just the uh, problems that African Americans were having in the South, just getting registered to vote. 
you had in many places uh, literacy tests, which are often referred to as tests or devices, that permitted local clerks at voter registration offices in parts of the South to exercise a great deal of discretion as a prerequisite for registering to vote. So whenever uh, a white would come in to register to vote, they would ask uh, some very simple, straightforward questions, and the person would be registered to vote. However, whenever you had African Americans, even with PhDs, they would ask them questions like, uh, you know, how many soap bubbles are there in a bar of soap? Uh, what do you mean by uh, interpreting this particular word of the of the state constitution? And of course, it would never be enough to satisfy the power of the local voter registrar and their clerks. So, uh, and then on top of that, you just had physical violence. You just uh, you had the Ku Klux Klan. You had uh, uh, various uh, white supremacist groups that were intent on preventing people of color from registering to vote. You had. Uh, back in 1963, I was, you had uh, people who, three college students uh, who came in from the north, I believe, uh, into Mississippi, and they were assassinated uh, in complicity with local local um, uh, county officials, uh, you know, sheriffs and the local law enforcement. So it was a major, major problem. And so what happened is in 1965, uh, Congress uh, saw how ineffective previous civil rights statutes were in addressing this issue, and they enacted this very comprehensive Voting Rights Act. It has several provisions. Uh, one applies nationally and one applies regionally. The one that applies regionally uh, to places like the South and Texas and Arizona and, and four counties in, in California is uh, Section 5, and Section 5 requires these covered jurisdictions to submit all voting changes, any change, uh, polling place changes, redistricting lines, to the U.S. government for uh, to secure approval. And the, the important thing about that is that when they submit their change, let's say, for example, they want to change a polling place from a minority area and take it over to a white area, they have to submit that to either the U.S. Attorney General or a federal district court in D.C., for approval, mm -hmm. and they have to demonstrate that that particular change does not have a discriminatory effect and was not adopted to a pursuant to a discriminatory purpose. So the important thing about that is that they have the jurisdictions under Section 5 have the affirmative obligation to demonstrate the absence of a discriminatory effect. And as a result of enforcement of this act, the U.S. Attorney General has prevented uh, probably close to 2,000 voting changes from being uh, implemented that had that could not meet that standard. And when I say, you know, a couple of thousand, um, each one, if there had not been uh, a Section 5, each one would have required a separate lawsuit to try to prevent from being implemented. So Section 5 is very important. Uh, Section 2 is, is a statute that applies nationally, which permits minority communities to challenge discriminatory structures uh, such as at-large elections, gerrymandered districts, and other practices and procedures if they have a discriminatory effect on voting rights, uh, on the voting rights of minorities. Joaquin, before we go into that, I want to ask you a little bit about the 2010 census and the redrawing of districts and how all that is connected to the Voting Rights Act and to uh, the franchise for Latinos. 
Well, I think it's, uh, first of all, I think it's very important to point out that uh, there was tremendous population growth within the Latino community, and it's continued since 19, well, it's continued since they started documenting the growth of this community. Um, when you look at the, from the 1950s, with each decade, the uh, Latino community has increased substantially in many, many parts of the country. And this documented increase uh, continues uh, with this recent uh, decade. And what we see is that uh, out of the growth that occurred between 2000 and 2010, well over a half um, of this growth was uh, Latino. And uh, that's very significant because what that means is that when you have such tremendous growth rate nationally, uh, it just means that the, the society uh, has, at large has to make sure that this community is very well represented on elective governing boards like Congress and state legislatures. And so this growth in the Latino community just means that we, we have to really start to address some of the particularized needs of this community because if we don't, then, you know, we have to ask the question, where are these folks going to be, you know, the young people, when they're um, over 18? You know, are they, are they going to be productive members of our society? Are they, um, are they going to be politically and socially integrated into our country? And I don't mean that we should just uh, start, uh, you know, not eating Mexican food or anything like that or, or cultural assimilation. I'm talking about political assimilation and, and integration in terms of becoming involved in those processes, those governmental processes that determine how our tax dollars are going to be, are being spent that create leadership opportunities for, for the, the Latino communities. So that, that's why this is uh, very important. And of course, the, the increase in Latino population uh, that occurred uh, during this past decade has uh, tremendous ramifications on the allocation of congressional seats among the various states. In fact, in Texas, you had four additional seats, and right now uh, there's litigation involved uh, in trying to uh, challenge the legislature's decision not to uh, create additional Latino congressional seats and, and legislative seats. So this is a, a very important, uh, a significant uh, you know, uh, issue for our community. And it's something that's going to continue even during this decade because the projected growth rates are going to, are that uh, the Latino community is going to, will continue to grow and that at some point uh, you're going to have uh, majority minority uh, states uh, within the country that have uh, the over 50% of their population will be Latino. Mm-hmm. And you have states like Texas, uh, New Mexico, California that are that are headed in that direction. Let, let me ask you about California. We have a new system in place for drawing of the lines. Uh, do you think this is a more effective way to establish jurisdictions? No, I uh, I don't think that concentrating political power in in, in a commission uh, is uh, is a good idea. I mean, I know that uh, it was something that was adopted by the electorate. In a, in a state proposition and and efforts to challenge the structure and the implementation of this commission have not been successful. And the major problem that I have with commissions is that uh, under the state legislative process where you had elected officials making the decisions, 
of course they were going to be making decisions that would favor their own political incumbencies. But we had other checks and balances against any egregious types of gerrymandering. In those instances where you had uh, legislators or uh, governmental entities saying, well, we're, we, we are changing the lines because of political party considerations, but in reality, they were changing the lines because they didn't want more Latinos on the boards of uh, supervisors or the legislature and so on. Um, those kinds of excesses yeah. could be checked by state and federal court systems. So are you optimistic that this will uh, yield a good plan, or are we going to see litigation arising out of the redistricting in California as well? Well, no, there, there will be litigation. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, I think it's a plan that uh, has some positive features and also some negative features. And my primary focus right now is in Northern California, where they created a Senate seat uh, that did not include um, the community of East San Jose where it had been traditionally been put in place. And so uh, I'll be um, arguing before the U.S. Department of Justice that that the Department of Justice should object to that particular configuration because that district runs through Monterey County, which is a Section 5 covered jurisdiction. Joaquin, an issue that's come up is um, some contention around whether undocumented people who are counted in the census should be included for purposes of drawing of districts. Yes, in my view, uh, this is a fairly straightforward issue. The Constitution requires that congressional uh, allocation of districts uh, be based on population. And when you count population, including non-citizens, uh, you have uh, congressional seats that, that are allocated um, a certain uh, way, uh, with some states receiving more congressional districts than others. And if the basis for allocating these congressional districts as citizens, then what you'll have is that you'll have uh, adjoining congressional districts that will be severely uh, malapportioned. They will have uh, one district will have 100 citizens and no undocumented persons, and another district will have 1,000 persons, of which only 100 persons are, are uh, citizens. And, and this affects the ability of the Congress uh, congressional representative to service effectively all of its constituents. And this is why, as a matter of constitutional interpretation, it's incorrect. And then secondly, as a matter of public policy, it's also uh, a failed uh, effort to, to try to, to change the way in which uh, Congress is governed. Joaquin, thanks very much for being on New America Now. Thank you. Joaquin Avila is the director of the National Voting Rights Advocacy Initiative at Seattle University School of Law. He spoke with New America Now's Irma Herrera. You're listening to New America Now, Dispatches from the New Majority on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. And friend us on Facebook. Just search for New America Now Radio.
In the hills outside of La Honda, California, there's an alternative juvenile probation program run by the city of San Francisco. It's called Log Cabin Ranch, and the mission is to keep young men out of the more punitive detention programs by incarcerating them in a rural setting and providing them with a six to nine month program of counseling, education, and vocational training. For a series we're calling Listen In at the Log Cabin Ranch, we gave some of the young men microphones and asked them to take us into their lives. Today, we introduce Chino. All right, this is Chino getting on the mic. Now it's two, yeah, it's two o'clock. We're in the wood shop. Now I just want to tell you a little bit about me. Uh, I'm 16, Latino heritage, Salvadorian. I'm the oldest of six. My childhood was rough like most minorities. Most of the kids I've been locked up with. Uh, I'll go do some work. I'm walking out for blacktop basketball courts. So yeah, just taking a moment, time to reflect before I got here. I didn't really have an anger problem. Like, I didn't really get mad or triggered about anything. But now, when I got here, it's too much stress, too much work. They say it's a rehabilitation program, really ain't. Read an article maybe like a month ago, and they said how good the kids and the program were doing. It's really not. Other kids that they were talking about repeated. They re-offended again after they got out. They were supposed to be rehabilitated and put back into their environment. It's funny, that's like taking a bright color out of its paint or whatever. Take one drop and extract that color, make it all white, pure it. And then put it back in the same can with the same paint. It just stands out. And eventually it just gets mixed back up together and it's the same color as it was before. Alright, how we looking, Miguel? You ready? Alright, let's do it if they're tight. You know, certain things remind you that you're still locked up and you're not free. I'm going to take your points if you don't do this. Certain instructions. The tone of voice they use for you. The kids around you. If you don't do this, then there's going to be consequences. You know, if you're in a bad mood, you got to suck it up and do it. Otherwise, you're going to get in trouble. You know? So you do it. You get mad. You stress out. I don't think anything good out this program. One phone call a week. One visit a week. Great. Rehabilitation program. What's really going to change your mind when you're here? 
what really do they have to offer? Mandatory programs, mandatory groups. You can't change yourself if you locked up. You don't want to sit down and talk to random people about your emotions, about how you grew up, how you think. I don't know what to say. You know, you don't want to be told how to clean, how to eat, how to hold the spoon. You don't want to be told you have to exercise. But it's all mandatory. It's all part of jail. That's what always reminds you that you're in jail. And that's what gets in your way of changing. But yeah, I ain't really got much to say. Listen in at the Log Cabin Ranch was produced for New America Now by Lisa Morehouse with support from Will Roy and The Beat Within. The program was funded by the Zellerback Family Foundation and the City of San Francisco Probation Department. from the new majority. I'm Shireen Sadegi. It's surprising to meet John Madden. He's a Hollywood film director, Oscar-nominated for Shakespeare in Love. And yet, upon first greeting, he's a rather gentle soul who somehow ended up in the glamorous world of American cinema after years in radio in his native United Kingdom. His films, including the critically acclaimed Captain Corelli's Mandolin, are often about history, and his new film, The Debt, about World War II, is no exception. John Madden joins us today to discuss filmmaking, history, and the obscured international stories that return to the light of day when someone makes a film about them. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. So tell us why you felt the need to remake this Israeli film. Uh, It's an incredibly compelling story. Um, uh, The Israeli film was made in Hebrew and only had a very brief release in Israel. And aside from, I think, a, a festival appearance, has not been seen in the United States or, or anywhere wide. It seemed to me to be a, a story that deserved a wider telling, um, and not to improve on the original film, but, but uh, certainly to, um, it seemed to offer simultaneously uh, a, a very, very compelling thriller narrative, which is a very exciting cinematic form, I think, but intertwined uh, inextricably with a very, very powerful uh, dramatic narrative emotionally, psychologically, and morally complex story. Why do you think it's important to remake films that are made in countries that most Americans particularly are not going to view? Uh, Well, we all have things to learn, don't we, about the way uh, um, different ethnicities view different subjects and 
anything of the magnitude of you know the biggest story, the worst story that mankind could countenance. I think uh, that the aftermath of the Second World War and the atrocities uh, that occurred during that time seems a subject that is is always worth looking at and worth telling, particularly from a very fresh perspective. You know, obviously, because the central characters are Israeli. Um, and the film, as you know, deals with the pursuit of a suspected Nazi war criminal. And the, and the core of the film takes place in the first 15 years of Israel's life as a nation. It, it seems a very interesting moment to look at and a very interesting perspective to explore because the Holocaust and its, its aftermath was crucial, of course, in the establishing of that country. Do you have a personal connection with this history particularly? Uh, through marriage, my wife is Jewish, but beyond that, no, other than just a, you know, a, a very profound interest in it. You make a lot of historical films. Uh, you, you really make an effort to uh, sort of give the world a remembrance of parts of history that they might have forgotten and, and to teach others parts of history that they didn't know. Why is history so important to you? I think film has an ability, um, you know, as books do, obviously, but perhaps to a wider audience in a very immediate way to take people to a place they don't know about. At the most banal level, what I call the through the keyhole possibilities that, that, that film has uh, is an extraordinary thing. You can, you can uh, literally place people in a different environment in, in totally different ways. Uh, and I would hope that... The films that I've made don't do that in any kind of academic way. I mean, Shakespeare in Love is about as anachronistic as you could get. But nevertheless, um, it, it aims to give the audience some sense of uh, life uh, at that time. But th that's a kind of a byproduct, really, because uh, all of those films, I think, are just about human behavior and human behavior in a context which is in and of itself interesting because of its foreignness, I suppose. What what is foreignness? What does foreign mean? I mean, you had authors like Albert Camus who wrote an entire novel that defined him called The Stranger or The Outsider. Mm -hmm. What is foreign? What is an outsider? What is well, a stranger? We're all trapped within our own skin, aren't we? Within our own perspective on the world. And the only way we move forward as a civilization is trying to learn and understand the perspectives of other people, either the the people we're talking to in a room or more seriously the perspectives of other ethnicities if you look at the world right now uh, it's incredibly polarized uh, politically between different views of the way people should behave and uh, you know spiritually and politically and so forth uh, spiritually more now than it was when I was growing up I grew up in the Cold War of course and that was a competing ideologies, and now we're uh, in much more difficult circumstances. But it seems to me, more than ever, the effort to understand a different point of view, even in the most polarized situations, to come back to this film, is, is profound. And any way in which, uh, you know, through a popular medium like cinema, we can do that seems to me to be a chance to be seized. Well, well, you do that in the film. I mean, you have that critical line in the film where uh, one of the three main characters said that um, we're we're not animals. You know, we we shouldn't treat them as they treated 
other people. Mm-hmm. Is, is that kind of what you're getting at when you say that we want to look at things um, from a different point of view? Yes. Uh, you know, the danger with this kind of story, uh, just, just to take the film as a uh, starting off point for the argument, you know, you're dealing with a, a character who, who is apparently responsible for some of the worst crimes against humanity that we've ever known, and we're still not able totally to recover from that or to understand how that happened. So the circumstance obviously would tend to assume that that person is so far, the, you know, uh, uh, away from us and, and uh, a villainy that is sort of unimaginable. But equally, that person is a human being, and at some level we have to try and understand what made that person believe that th- that was a good or useful or appropriate way to behave. And certainly in the film, when that that line is uttered, you're in a circumstance where there's somebody in captivity and somebody in captivity who's chained to a radiator is somebody instinctively we feel sympathy for because they are helpless and vulnerable. And in the circumstance that we're talking about, uh, we've just seen an image of that person in a very highly uh, charged Way which we associate with a different context. I don't want to say exactly what it is. But, yeah, so I think I'm inviting people to to try and evaluate where the moral uh, ascendancy is in any circumstance in this film so that... Because, really, the film is ultimately about moral accountability but not just in the the obvious sense of uh, holding a a war criminal responsible for his actions. To to sort of put this film into perspective in in our time mm. i as a viewer i as a viewer immediately thought of images of abu ghraib when mm-hmm. you had that specific scene mm-hmm. with the hood being put on his head mm-hmm. on the captive's head while mm-hmm. he was chained to the radiator mm-hmm. is is that something that you wanted to do to sort of show us the parallels with things we've experienced I, now i think we we certainly were aware of that uh, in that scene absolutely uh, you, you lead people to a point of view where you can imagine why that happened, but at the same time, the effect of it is extremely disturbing uh, because it dehumanizes somebody uh, just for the exact reason that the pictures of Abu Ghraib were very disturbing. And, uh, and that makes us say to ourselves, what does it say about that? We have to maintain extraordinarily high standards of our own behavior in that circumstance, if we are trying to deal with people who have done wrong to us, if you see what I mean. So, yes, that, that was definitely a conscious image. Did you have an emotional reaction to making this film? Was it an emotional experience for you? It was an emotional experience, yes. Uh, it's difficult to talk about the film without, uh, you know, re- revealing certain things that it, it's much better for an audience to experience themselves because there are a number of inversions and surprises in the film that are crucial to the way the film operates and works, so I don't want to talk about them. But it seems to me that fundamentally, at the center, even, even if the, the Holocaust is a difficult subject to relate to without uh, you know, resorting to two dimensions in the end because the stakes are so high, there's a point of entry into the film which has to do with simple choices that the characters make, both emotional and political, I suppose, that are so uh, extraordinarily um, easy to engage with as an audience and to watch the effect that those choices have over a lifetime and what it does to people. 
the film is very moving at that level, and uh, and certainly I found it very potent, a very potent piece to work on, for that reason. The sense that you you, you know the arrangements we make with ourselves. Uh, and how we proceed through life, the sense of lost opportunities and uh, lives that are locked up in some something terribly wrong, the sense that the central character is looking out at a life that she doesn't really own uh, is very strong, very powerful, particularly in the hands of two sensational actors playing that one role, Helen Mirren and Jessica Chastain. Do you find that Americans react differently to your films? Do you expect that they'll react differently than than your native British people will react to this film? I've no idea how to answer that question. Um, I don't think so. I'm always amazed by the fact that if you, you know, if you're dealing with human behavior, it sort of travels, you know, the, 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 it, it, it's not wildly different, I think, from one place to another. That's my experience. It always sort of fascinates me, for example, that Japan uh, and the Japanese are absolutely wild about Shakespeare. <laughs> you know that that film probably played as well in Japan as it did anywhere. And uh, you know, there's something marvelous about that. It's just about about certain principles of human behavior that seem to cross barriers. But uh, I don't, I don't really notice that. Uh, I mean, America is a very open and welcoming culture, and I think that you know, it's to my great fortune since most of my career has been based on it, that they welcome the kind of stories that I want to tell. America is a very diverse nation. Do you find that, let's take your film Shakespeare in Love, but we can also talk about this film or Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Do you find that different ethnicities of Americans react differently to your films? You tend to sort of look at that demographically when you're researching films. I suppose so. I can't really point to it with any degree of expertise, though. You know, famously, we share a common language, don't we? That uh, both. But do we? <laughs> but well, do we? Who knows? I mean, I, 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 you know, I think that there is, there's a way that America represents itself to itself. You see what I mean? That I find hard to understand sometimes. I think particularly that mainstream American cinema mythologizes human experience in a way that I find a little hard to comprehend and to cope with sometimes particularly the notion that everything resolves and everything is always for the best in the best of all possible worlds I think we need to be uh, sometimes it doesn't feel quite grown up enough to me that idea that the need for endings to be happy is something that the orthodox Hollywood culture tends to put forward but I don't find that borne out by audiences that's the interesting thing I think audiences are talked down to by a lot of mainstream movies uh, and a, a lower level of intelligence is assumed, which uh, I find a little depressing. And I, it's not something I find when I come to America with, you know, the films that I make. I, I find that audiences appreciate being able to participate in the narrative of the film by filling in some parts for themselves rather than being told what the movie is about before it starts. To close, I just want to ask you what's coming next for you. Are you going to do another historical film? Is there another part of the world that you're interested in that you'd like to cover in your well, films? That sounds like a, a question that you set up because you know what I've done, but you don't know what I've done. Actually, while waiting for this film to come out, because this film got uh, slightly caught up in some studio realignments and so it's come out about 18 months after it might have done, I've actually, in the meantime, made a film in India. <laughs> and uh, uh, yes, which is another... Uh, that's about cultural collision 
that film about a, a group of English people at an age where the world has stopped paying them any attention because they're old, who, as it were, outsource their retirement to India and go to a, um, a, a, an establishment called the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, which is also the title of the film. And the film tells the story of their collision with one another and their collision with the madness of modern India. Um, very, very inspiring film to make because you can't not be inspired by India just to look at the world in a different way because uh, it's just an uh, extraordinary place. And the film is funny and, um, and melancholy, I think, but, but uh, mainly funny. So, yeah, it was a very interesting film to me. Well, your, your secret is out, I'm afraid, because IMDb has informed the world that you have this film on release, uh, <laughs> that it's going to come out in 2011, apparently. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, yes. Okay. Rumbled. Um, yes. Uh, it was a radically different film from The Debt, though I'm sure it shares uh, perspectives of one kind or another, but looked at from a completely different view. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today. I wish you success in your film, and thank you for joining us on New America Now. Thank you. Thank you for having me. John Madden is the Oscar-nominated director of Shakespeare in Love. His new film is The Debt. Thanks for listening to New America Now, dispatches from the new majority. Inter-ethnic, international, and intergenerational news for the new America. If you'd like to hear more from any of our guests today or subscribe to a podcast of our program, go to newamericanow.org. New America Now is produced at the KALW Studios in San Francisco by New America Media. Thanks for joining us. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Next week on New America Now. The 10th anniversary of 9-11 is upon us, and as all Americans come together to commemorate the event, American minorities in particular are trying to put the pieces of their lives together. This week, we hear from journalists from these communities as they tell us what 10 years has meant for them in a post-9-11 America. That's next week on New America Now.